Hello. Hello. Industry. Industry. Hello and welcome back to Industry Tactics. Friendly Rich here, uh, feeling delighted about these last few weeks of doing live shows with this new outfit. I've started with uh, my friends Joan Smith and the Jane Doe's. Check out that episode on this podcast, actually. It's episode 93, where I speak with Joan and Tom. And it's been a really fun collaboration. So thanks for coming out. Anyone who's checked out our live shows as of late, we have many more live dates coming up. So go to FriendlyRich.com to check that out. And yeah, I just appreciate all the support lately. It's really uh, not lost on me, you know, since coming out of the pandemic, seeing people in the real world and making music again and scaring people uh in various cities feels really uh uplifting so um stand by for more news on a new record coming out in the new year from me and uh as i mentioned big news coming for this podcast uh i can't wait to announce the news coming soon on that front so thanks for your loyal listenership um on the podcast today none other than violinist percussionist composer uh, and all-around creative music, Melody McIver, recently appointed uh, to the Faculty of Music over at uh, University of Manitoba. We had a lovely chat about their musical career to date and what's coming up uh, in store for, for, in, for Melody. So dig in. This is episode number 157 of Industry Tactics, feeling really uplifted by these great conversations I'm having with so many amazing musicians in our world. So thanks for supporting. Here it is now, episode 157, Melody McIver. find you this fine afternoon this fine day i am at my home in winnipeg wonderful wonderful and melody how long have you lived in winnipeg winnipeg's quite new to me so we moved here uh mid-july so still Mm -hmm. just kind of settling into the city getting feel for the flow i didn't realize it was so so fresh for you okay how are you digging it so far it's great. Um, I've got a lot of family in Winnipeg, so it's a city I've long been familiar with since uh, childhood and uh, coming in and out. Um, Winnipeg's one of the closest urban centers to northwestern Ontario, where I was based for six years. So mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah one of my favorite Canadian cities and finally uh, stars aligned and got a job. I like to call it um, a great fixer upper. <laughs> <laughs> um you know you know maybe, maybe i'm being a little hard on it but uh 
that's awesome. And what what brings you out there? I see that you're you're teaching, right? You're 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 a professor at um, is it University of Winnipeg? Did I get that right? Uh, University of Manitoba. Manitoba. Sorry. Uh, fantastic. Wow. Congratulations on that. <clears throat> and is that a recent appointment? Uh, that is. So my job started July 1st and we moved here uh, afterwards. Amazing. How are you enjoying that? Is that a bit of an adaptation or I imagine? Yeah, definitely an adaptation. Yeah. Um, I actually first re-entered academia the previous year okay. um, where I um, I previously had an appointment at Brandon University, also in music. Right, right, right. And uh, really enjoyed the time uh, with the School of Music uh, at Brandon, but just in terms of quality of life for both myself and my partner, who was just kind yeah. of along for the ride, Winnipeg seemed like a much better city for us to awesome. set up camp in. Awesome. Well, I wish you well there. Um, what are you teaching? Is it composition? It's it's a bit of a flexible appointment. So I was uh, part of the Indigenous Scholars Initiative, uh, where the University of Manitoba as a whole is working on uh, mm-hmm. making sure that there's Indigenous representation in all uh, f- departments and faculties uh, at the institution. So I was the first Amazing. to hire within the School of Music. Previously at Brandon, I was... Um, heading the the composition department which is a fancy way of saying i was the only composition <laughs> prophet brandon <laughs> uh, so it's a slightly larger program at manitoba so i'm teaching a bit in composition uh but also uh bringing in some more indigenous courses uh from more like a research uh approach and as, right as a first year hire like i think it's going to take a couple of years to really see which courses stick what uh, what direction like students are looking for, and as how well. exciting! How exciting! Um, yeah, they, I, well, that's amazing, and um, I'm I'm glad to hear that you're out there and and doing this very important work. Uh, give an elevator pitch to our listeners um, on your music, and I want you to set up a piece of your music that we can play, and I'll I'll insert it in after, so we can kind of just start to hear some of your work in the context of this conversation. Sure. Uh, So, uh, I'm an Anishinaabe uh, violist and composer, at times a percussionist, Um, and I think uh, in terms of my musical practice, like the narrative, uh, the narrative approach and uh, critical politics that I bring into into discussions surrounding my music, I think, is a really important part of how I uh, present my work. But otherwise, um, I'm indebted to various um, contemporary improvisation uh, traditions and a sort of 20th century Western classical sort of tonal, tonal-ish sort of uh, framework. And yeah. my performance practice is as a electroacoustic violist. Uh, so um, I think through the pandemic, especially, I've become increasingly a pedal geek. Um, yeah. So that's a part of uh, my playing approach that I really enjoy in terms of uh, extended technique and extending auditory capacities on how I work with uh, with the violist, both as a, a soloist and as a collaborator. Do you have a particular piece in mind that might uh, illuminate your pedal geekiness? Uh, 
I think Nanan sets the stage really well. It was, um, it became sort of the, I didn't have a single when I released Reckoning, but it was right. the, the track that really seemed to strike a chord with a lot of folks and uh, puts together a different set of timbre, I think, than is often anticipated for, for a violist. Right on. Here comes Nanan right now from Melody McIver. Yeah, be- beautiful work. I'm uh, I'm so impressed with with your output. Um, so that was that that was from Reckoning. That was from 20, 2017. 2017, eh? And um, that was your first solo release. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And mm-hmm. uh, it was originally uh, conceived as a score for the theater piece of the same name, uh, which is a play uh, written by Tara Began. And I was just really proud of how that uh, music came together and I ended up um, uh, deciding to chop it up a bit as a release and I think it stood uh, nicely uh, on its own. Yeah, congratulations. It's it's nice. It's really, really heavy stuff and and so so moving. Um, I'd like to hear a little more from, from that EP uh, later, maybe we'll go out with something, but, um, your, your, you know, your musical adventures have, um, have taken you like 
it, it sounds like to, to many incredible places in, in our country and beyond. Um, can you can you unpack a little bit of like where how you collided with music in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I I come from a musical household, so uh, my mom. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, really proud of my mom, too, who's um, a second career musician now. Like, uh, okay. Rather than going into early retirement at the end of the Harper years when he was uh, slashing and burning the CBC, yeah. uh, my mom went back uh, to school, uh, wow. piano pedagogy, and uh, built up a, a piano teaching studio and has incre- become increasingly busy as a performing pianist and composer as well. So, though she wasn't a professional musician uh, by vocation as I was mm. growing up, uh, she always really had that passion for the piano in the house and really maintained like um, that level of passion and dedication to music. Uh, and I think in a really organic way for me. So neat, neat. So you had it. It was in the house, basically. Eh? It was like growing yeah. up. It was all around you. What, what's your mom's name? I want to highlight that. Yeah, uh, Beverly McIver. Beverly McIver. Right. Right. I came across Beverly McIver's work at the Canadian Music Center, <clears throat> among other among other uh, areas. Um, okay, so that's great. So the b- big inspiration right at home in your mother. Um, amazing, amazing. Where do you go from there? Like, is it? I mean, do you get into lessons? How do you kind of gravitate to to the? It's viola, right? Yeah, private yeah. lessons uh, <clears throat> growing up. And it was actually uh, my mom's a pianist through and through, and my piano uh, playing uh, skills are not n- nothing to write home about. Uh, it's a very got you. Got you. Uh, functional sort of instrument that I came uh-huh. to as a music, uh, as a music undergrad. Um, my dad uh, studied violin and guitar, um, even bagpipes as a kid. Oh, wow. And so I, we always had his childhood violin in the house. And so that was something that uh, just by fluke, my neighbor as a child was also studying uh, music education and violin. And so my mom asked her like, Hey, we've got this violin. Like, can you tune it up and play it for us? And mm-hmm. I was like five or something and was really gravitated to that. And like, spent a year or two nagging until my mom agreed to put me in lessons love it and so the interest was there but i was also a pretty reluctant no i don't want to practice kid for a good dozen years or so i I don't know my teen years when i uh really started putting the work in as a as a child i think i was more interested in hockey than music lessons but um, where did you where did you grow up uh, I grew up in rural Ottawa, so uh, ah, 90s, okay. like uh, pre-amalgamation Ottawa, like we weren't within Ottawa city limits than suddenly we were. So okay. uh, out in the country, the, but still right. an hour drive from the downtown core. So it gave me option uh, access to a lot of amazing live music, um, National Arts Centre Orchestra, uh, all the different music festivals that come through Ottawa in the summer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which really opened up my ears in my teen years. Me, me, um, and so you you were you were a little more interested in hockey, but you all you also had this musical side to to your to your identity to who you are, right? Um, who were some of the early teachers that that kind of really helped lock it for you and get you on this path? 
apart from your mom, it sounds like. Yeah. I think, uh, public music, uh, public school music education, love it. The big thing for me, having that community and I guess an only child out in the country, mm-hmm. um, I was uh, a band geek through and through um, yeah. and coming to middle school in grade seven, um, we were told to choose an instrument and mm-hmm. uh, I was coming from a rural school that didn't have a music program. So we were like a year behind, but with so much six years of music lessons already, I was like, yeah, I know what a quarter quarter note is. We didn't have a strings program. So I ended up yeah. going about as far from violin as I could. I went for percussion instead. And I think that mm-hmm. really flipped the switch for me just uh-huh choosing something at the polar spectrum of kind of musical performance like that. I think that's when I became like really passionate started. Mm. Like I want to listen to bands with all the best drummers. Like this is so fun. Like, um, what was some of that stuff that you were, you were getting into at that time? I get the, I was like age 12 or something and picking uh-huh. up CD and like I remember like they it was probably when like the Art Blakey do, or not the Art Blakey uh, the Ken Burns jazz documentary like right. had like right. all the CDs coming out of it and I actually right. still haven't watched the documentary series but on a whim I was just like I grabbed like an Art Blakey CD started like buying issues of Modern Drummer every month which like was also kind wow. of presenting this whole curriculum of drummers in different styles to listen to um, and I'm, I'm coming of age, like in like the yeah. early to mid two thousands. So like, okay. it was just kind of tapering off. Like, so I was listening to a lot of heavier bands too. Like I remember system of a down tool yeah. like, and like, yeah. uh, yeah. getting into some of like nineties prog and tech metal. Like I remember having like Opeth t-shirts in high school, cynic atheist. Like I was amazing through corners of the internet. Like before we had like streaming audio, like I'm very uh-huh. Looking at just like the accessibility of music now and like for yeah, yeah, yeah. youth coming up, I'm like, what would it have been like to just like have this world of music and not having to like save up to buy like one CD <laughs> a month? Like, <laughs> I don't know if it would have been as fun though, right? It was yeah. it was nice to blow the bank account on all that on all that garbage. Yeah. <laughs> but formative. You, yeah. You cherish them and they <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think you do cherish it more. Um, uh, that's awesome. It's awesome to hear that like some of that newer, weirder metal gets into the water for you and, and somehow helps shape your voice as well. You know, um, do you, I, I guess now cut to then eventually you end up going to university for music. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah, so I auditioned at a number of schools, and halfway through my teen years, like I took a couple of years off of violin. Like I was just, um, it wasn't kind of clicking for me in the same way. And I think there was like so much kind of elitism and competitiveness in terms yes. of like yeah. classical training, especially in Ottawa, which is like such like a. I don't even want to say upper middle class, like a lot of like those youth orchestra spaces were just like straight up upper class and mm-hmm. um, we weren't in poverty by a long shot, but as the only brown kid that was ever in the building, like you definitely mm-hmm. felt like a bit of an outlier. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, like drums and like my uh, middle and high school music teachers were just so uh, encouraging and supportive of uh, as me as a percussionist. I switched my focus there for a couple of years, okay. but it was that final year is like you know what i want to try and get into university for music and i feel like i'll have a better shot if i go back to strings so like i really uh 
buckled up and it was still very competitive to get in as a violinist. Um, and yeah. so York was the only school that I auditioned to where I got in. Um, mm. But I think that was really a blessing too, because yeah. uh, the, the yeah. Toronto creative music scene um, in like the late 2000s yeah. uh, was really formative for me and like really pushed me out of my comfort zone in like the best way possible. Wow. And the wow. York program was also not that classical model, which I wasn't looking to continue. Part like I appreciate for the technique. There's a lot of classical yeah. repertoire that I love, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, York let me take classes in drums, classes yeah. in strings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was just so much more flexible than this conservatory model that I still rebel against as a professor. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you are. Um, uh, we, we need you now more than ever. Uh, and it sounds, I, I mean, I love that. I like the fact that York helped you find your voice a little bit, right? Um, they let you ex expand. They let you kind of, uh, you know, do a little bit of searching along the way, as opposed to just like one lane in terms of your learning. Who, who were some of the people you were learning from at York? And are there, are there still musicians that you, you talked about tapping into that Toronto creative music scene? Mm. I'm, I'm assuming maybe even some of them have been interviewed on this podcast before. Who are some of the people that you would have really formed those relationships with as a, you know, growing, growing, uh, how can we say it? Like your, your musical community. Hmm. Yeah. As an undergrad, uh, well, podcast, Matt Brubeck was, uh, was, there you go. Me. uh, I took a number of his studies classes and it wasn't until my third year of my undergrad where, yeah. uh, with my, and I, I had the same private classical violin teacher through the four years, Peggy Hills McGuire, who's still based out of Mississauga. Amazing. And I remember at the end of the second year, I was like, what do you think of me on viola? And she was like, definitely ah. check that out. I think that'd be a great ah. for you. And okay. then, yeah. And third year, like I took uh, the contemporary improv uh, studio with uh, Casey Suckall. Yeah. Yeah. Included private lessons. So I got set up with Matt Brubeck there. And I remember walking in like, first week with Matt and I was like, so I think I'm, I think I might switch to viola and amazing Matt night. Brubeck episode 128 gentle Perfect. listeners. If you want to okay. check out that, that talk with Matt Brubeck and we talked to Casey Sokol uh, as well on the podcast. So check out those. This will pair nicely with those conversations, I think. So oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry to cut you off there. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. I remember Matt was just like, can you sing the low C on a viola? I, was, uh -huh. I, think I hit that note and he was like, okay, that's you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, I mean, I was like maybe 20. Uh, like I was. You got to love that. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't feel like I was in a position to argue. And like, there's just something <laughs> pulling me to uh, the viola and uh, having the opportunity to study with Matt for that year, of course. Love it. What, a, what an impact. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Cello and viola, they share the same tuning. Uh, a lot okay. of the repertoire is based on cello transcriptions. So, like, we're very close relatives in the string family. And Interesting on viola, too. It is kind of, for me, it feels like a little bit of the underdog instrument. I don't want to, I don't want to put it in a box or anything, but, you know, the way it navigates in the anthropology of the instruments, I don't know, it sort of has this, uh, it's, it's just interesting. Like I, I, I you know, vi violin gets so much of that shine. It's just me peering from the outside on, on the string family. Right. But it kind of, 
it kind of gets second fiddle. It literally gets third fiddle. In a, you know, <laughs> so it's interesting, right? Do you, do you, um, I think it, it opens up opportunities though, right? Because violin is so much in the foreground getting burned by the limelight so often. Absolutely. And even a lot of violists that uh, stay more firmly planted in that sort of contemporary classical tradition say the same thing, where because yeah. there's so little repertoire written for the viol until the 20th century, it opens up a lot of possibilities. Uh, there's no standard way of constructing a viola. Um, hmm. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, like violin has a very set size and parameters, uh, but the viola, uh, there's a certain convention of like the bigger the better, as big as you can manage. Oh, neat. Um, but I neat. have small hands. I tore my rotator cuff uh, about a decade ago, uh, okay. so I've gone for okay. smaller scale instruments since then. I've uh, been getting increasingly into extended range instruments, but my wow. latest viola was 3D printed, and I kind of like the... <laughs> You weren't kidding about geeking out with pedals. The actual inst. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, how? How how'd you do that? I mean, doing your homework, you stumbled upon a 3D printed uh, viola. That's amazing. Yeah, it was just, it popped up on Instagram. Uh, oh my I, God. I like following different electric yeah. violinists yeah. and violists and i think someone else posted uh one of david perry's instruments out of portland and okay. started following his work and finally bit the bullet when like he did like this pride series uh, so cool over june and so i've got like this rainbow progress flag viola amazing uh, and amazing. just called it uh, i don't know i uh I think I was in Winnipeg maybe a, a week or two before it arrived. Uh, okay. so it's very new to me. That must have been such a great day to get that. In the, did you get that in the mail? I did. Oh, man. Wow. Amazing. My, oh, my. Um, let's cut to some more of your music. Set something else up for us based on the lovely conversation we've been having, please, if you will. Uh, let's go with uh, Dabino Aguijo. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that piece? Yeah, so uh, Dabino Aguijago was uh, commissioned as part of an APTN uh, uh, documentary a couple of years ago. Uh, the show's called uh, Amplify. It's still available, I think, over like the APTN streaming app. Oh, okay. Um, and Amplify is a series where um, a musician and a, an indigenous mu musician filmmaker kind of paired together for a week to work on a project. Uh, based on uh, based on a concept, so I ended up working with uh, Nadia McLaren, and we were really just honing in on connections to uh, to land and territory in like the Sulukout region, where uh, we're both on the Shnabe. Uh, Nadia okay. grew up in Sulukout; it was where I was, it's my homeland, and that's where I was, um, lived for six years. And uh, it ended up also having a bit of this like Steve Reichian sort of approach, where um, oh, yes. I was just starting to work on. Uh, my string quartet Odabanog at the time, where, uh, which was commissioned in response to Steve Reich's different trains. Right, right, uh, so right. that notion of like speech rhythm, like in, uh, impacting uh, uh, melodic development was really bouncing around in my head. And so we spent 
Uh, Ralph Johnson is an Anishinaabe elder based in Sioux Lookout who uh, was kind of mentoring us through the uh, through the week uh, mm-hmm. while we were working on this documentary. And uh, he shared uh, with us this phrase, uh, um, thinking about uh, music and sound in its role in uh, like the Anishinaabe creation uh, story and like he was really emphasizing that particular phrase and mm-hmm. eventually I was like okay that's it like that's that's the song and wow. Wow. Uh, it ended up being this sort of seven eight composition to be in a way and kind of based on like these discussions that I had recorded with Ralph and and it's in terms of my commercial releases, it was nice to have like the opportunity to do, do more of like a structured, like multi-tracking approach. Yeah. Uh, the Reckoning uh, EP was very live off the floor, uh, recorded kind of blended between acoustic viola and uh, whatever the pedals were doing at the time. <laughs> and so uh, Dabina Wakejago was a bit more structured in terms of like the viola takes and then a, a bit of uh, piano and uh, percussion that we added after the fact in the studio. A little more production. Uh, here it comes now, Debi Nuai Gijigo, uh, Melody McIver. Thank you so much. Debi Nuai Gijigo,
beautiful work. I'm very inspired by where your artistic voice takes you in terms of how you pick up a, a composition, how you pick up on a concept like uh, Dabanag and, 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 and relating it to Steve Reich, uh, different trains, but your own, your own lived experience, your own perspectives. Um, can you kind of get to the core of why, why music is such an important or composition and creativity is such an important uh, pillar in your life? Um, what kind of, I just get more interested in what drives you, why you make your art the way you do. That's a great question. And I think the projects that always um, come closest home for me are uh uh, collaborative projects with other Indigenous artists. Uh, yeah. I think uh, storytelling uh, and that narrative aspect has such an important part in many different Indigenous cultures. And it's not, uh, I'm very much an overthinker as well. So, though I do enjoy, I, I don't know if I even enjoy writing creative nonfiction. It's things that I do Whoa. from time to time, but okay. music is just such a more organic and comfortable space as a as an outlet for me so i like the yeah. um working with uh filmmakers playwrights uh yeah. more into film composition over the last couple of years so uh being able to have musical outlets outside of my own solo practice often ends up feeding back into my solo practice and revisiting some of these uh, works that I've developed originally for other media forms, whether film or theater. Um, and I think it's my way of contributing and strengthening to and like reflecting on that story and finding uh, commonalities is a really uh, inspiring way for me to strengthen messaging, tell stories. Uh, and I think so much of my musical practice is... Um, it's like people see, see like Melody McIver, Anishinaabe composer. And I think yeah. so often, like I really do find how I'm fascinated by how people reflect back to me what they see in my work. And I think often like the point gets missed through this sort of romanticization. Like mm -hmm. I have had dozens of people, uh, whether indigenous or non-indigenous, um, mm -hmm come up like oh i hear like so much powwow music in your work or whatever like oh like the drums like they're so present and it's mm -hmm. like it wasn't there at least not intentionally and wow. so it's like the sort of romantic essentialism that often yeah comes up where uh, uh being anishinaabe is deeply important to me like working with yeah. uh collaborating with different indigenous artists extremely important to me but yeah um, I'm also of mixed heritage. Like my dad's of Scottish and Lithuanian descent. Like I think I've always had a bit of an affinity for a lot of like the Soviet era composers, which right, right. didn't always make sense to me until my mom was like, you know, your dad's Lithuanian, right? Like this whole mm -hmm. like Russian wow. sort of Soviet wow. sound is like wow. Wow. part of that uh, is part of your heritage as well. And um, I think often working in this sphere of indigenous composers, like we're put into this sort of oppositional. Yeah. Um, you're indigenous, why do you work in like this Western classical music sphere? But um, mm -hmm. I don't think indigenous authors that are writing in English are uh, presented with that same sort of... Good one. Yeah. Contradiction. Like, right. I mean, that tension right. is definitely present, uh, but 
uh, it's very much kind of navigating these power dynamics of these are the tools that we have had access to through centuries of oppression. So it's not, it, it's a contested space. I'm not yeah. happy with many yeah. areas of this sort of Western classical music paradigm, but yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. think it's still a tool that I can wield in some. Oh, and, and you are you are pushing it forward and helping define what that looks like, uh, and and I think uh, helping undo some of those knots that might be there in terms of just associations that don't need to be so. Um, it's not as obvious as we might think, and I think like the work that you're doing. I just saw your name listed again recently. Correct me if I'm wrong about getting the body of, of what, what you sit on this group called the Indigenous Artists. Uh, committee or something with the, the Canadian music center at, or it's an advisory council, I guess. But mm-hmm. I mean, the more kind of work that you do at those tables along with actually making the music, I think is this beautiful, beautiful universe that I think does move the meter and, and create hopefully longstanding change in both in classical and, and non-classical, um, uh, realms right i I would hope i would hope Mm -hmm. um anything to add to that i'm not sure if i got that name right but i really admire the fact that you are doing that kind of work as well that for me that feels like advocacy it feels like it it, it really is helping the landscape overall in our country yeah you know like i i also have to double check my emails to see what the correct (laughs) name is Yeah, I want to say Indigenous Advisory mm-hmm. Council or Committee. I see so many acronyms yeah. fly past, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah. 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 it's working at arm's length from the Canadian Music Centre. And I think that is mm-hmm. like one mm-hmm. of like the fundamental questions I return to as like someone that was raised essentially within Ottawa, like auditioning for youth orchestras and having horrible racist experiences and like the lifetime of like side-eyed looks that myself and many of my indigenous colleagues, many of us who end up accessing musical education in this manner because of how our families were removed from indigenous communities through residential schools, through 60 scoop, through ongoing child welfare apprehension, like, those tensions there for us as participants in this classical music economy are inherently ones of colonialism. Mm. And then as we continue to kind of consume and study this music and we see the body of like Canadian classical works that gets uplifted, it's so much of like a Canadian nationalistic identity crisis that's based on a continuation of land theft through music theft, through stories theft, through song theft. And um, there's hundreds of these works in the Canadian Music Centre. And wow. uh, through wow. our respective music educations, like these are presented as something to be celebrated, usually with the assumption that there's no Indigenous people on the receiving end of thinking back of what it means to have our intellectual cultural property misused and reflected back and kind of morphed in these ways so um this whole area is just like i think just like a really fascinating and aggravating sort of intellectual project to try and um mediate through and so though i keep i feel like throughout my life i keep on like I told you how as a teenager, like I quit violin for a couple of years and was just yeah. like really into like metal drums and yeah, yeah. 
there was a reason why that happened, right? Yeah. And then come back in the classical strings and then run off, try to be a free improviser and then like get pulled back into like the classical music sphere again. Mm. And it's, mm. um, not mm. necessarily always consensual, but at least it's not, it's never politically neutral for me, like working yeah. in these spaces. And, yeah. uh, and that was a teacher too. Like I don't have any indigenous students currently, Okay. Um, teaching within a Bachelor of Music program. Like, there are very few Indigenous students that right. make it into these spaces. Mm. And so, I'm not always, quote-unquote, Indigenizing, but if, um, like, right now I'm teaching orchestration, and so, like, sitting through the textbooks and, like, explaining to the students when, like, mm. looking at all these heralded European composers, it's like, oh, we've got... Yeah. 40 different Wagner examples throughout this textbook. Like let's awesome. talk a little bit about the, the values or lack thereof of yeah. Card Wagner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right on. Uh, handle is like months of paychecks for every Canadian period musician, every Christmas season, yeah. but yeah. like his paychecks yeah. came from slavery. Right. Right. Uh, so right. Right. it's, interesting for me to put this critical spin to of like yeah, okay, we're yeah. participating in this musical economy but like what does that mean like what uh what do these orchestration textbooks omit when uh to this day we're still holding up wagner as this sort of yeah. essential yeah. figure in music and not questioning other parts of his legacy yeah yeah I, I, that's heavy. And, you know, I was about to ask you, Hey, why don't you share with me like your worst experience ever in music and what you learned from it. And then I think you just kind of like touched on some of the nonsense that you would have had to have swam through over the years. You gave me a window into it. And, um, I admire your courage. I admire your perseverance. And I, I'm so inspired by the fact that you are, teaching orchestration through the lens that it ought to be taught. And um, that's so inspiring and exciting to me that, I mean, I'm excited to see where you go with both your, <clears throat> your music, but also your teaching career and how they, they dance together. Right. Um, I know we only have a few minutes left here. So what do you, where do you want to go with your music melody as a, as a final question here? And hopefully we'll do a, a part two and do, go deeper. Like I'm excited to talk to, you know, many other artists who might be on that, um, that advisory council and maybe go in a, in a direction here with the podcast that would be very exciting to, you just touched on. So in that last section that you just mentioned so many important, you know, uh, items there that the Canadian music center and how it represents the relationship between you know, uh, indigenous creators and non that I think that's really interesting to me that I never had that really, I, I wasn't thinking enough about that, even though I've tried reading Dylan Robinson's book, I'm, I admittedly haven't finished it yet, but I, I will because it's an important read, but yeah, wh where do you want to go with this work, both musically and as an educator? Yeah. And I think Dylan's book really shines a light on a lot of these tensions that we have within like the Canadian art music uh, community uh, currently. And that's one that I very revelatory. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Yeah. In terms of current projects, I think I, though I started off as a bit of a, a solo artist, um, increasingly I've been diversifying my work more as a composer. Okay. Uh, so I'm, 
really looking forward uh, in the winter. Uh, Tasha Hubbard's a Cree filmmaker. Um, uh, did a beautiful documentary called We Will Stand Up based on uh, the aftermath of what happened when uh, Colton Bushi was was murdered. I'm going to say murdered. Wow, yeah. Uh, and she's wow. switched her focus to um, uh, a film about like the return of the buffalo, of indigenous relationships uh, with buffalo. And um, as an Anishinaabe person, I'm, I'm part of the buffalo clan. Okay. Uh, so... Um, how 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 heavy is it is it for you to work on you know i just think of like it must be so just so emotionally difficult to work through some of these but i some of these heavy topics but you can't not right i i have a feeling your that's what your answer is going to be it's like you can't shy away from the heaviness of it all can you yeah i feel like i <sighs> It's can be devastating, and I remember yeah. talking to Natasha because, she, uh, like the Colton Bushi film was so <laughs> horrific to work on, but uh, yeah. something um, nourishing about talking right. about Buffalo in in a regenerative way. So I was happy for her as a filmmaker as well because wow. I think I also take on these heavy projects where um, my last two scores for Reckoning and Returning Home were both based on like the fallout from residential school. Yeah. Yeah. They exactly some dark places. Yeah. And I think musically, like I enjoy going through a lot of these darker spaces, like whether it's like this sort of Soviet musical language, like with like the Shostakovich and Prokofiev stuff that I was really drawn to. Right. Um, uh, or like all the metal I was listening to as a teenager. Yeah, that's all of that is not exactly like uh, happy listening, is it? <laughs> yeah. And so it's finding a way of like having that like aesthetic of tension, of pain, of release um, nice. as a narrative counterpoint to some of the the stories that we're telling. Uh, sometimes I really struggle to get back into the beauty, like especially mm. scoring Returning Home um, at the 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 director was like okay this is like the optimism scene with all the school children where we have some hope and i'm like man we've been going through like an hour's worth of genocide footage and now you're asking me for the hopeful music and it was yeah. really hard for me to get there yeah yeah um well look uh we've run out of time i gentle listeners go to melodymcivor.com for all things melody, you'll, 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 you'll get into the, to the SoundCloud clips and, and you'll be able to dive in more extensively. Could we end on that piece that you were just referencing? Would that be a, a fun, what, what do you want to end with? It's chef's choice, of course, yeah, but. Um, I think that's suitable. And, um, that was orange shirt day and I'll send you the link after there's a viola okay. only version. That's, uh, available on the Returning Home soundtrack, uh, but I also re-recorded it for a studio concert video with like some Fender Rhodes that I think gave it a bit more vibrancy to it. So uh, love it. Give you the time code there, and you can splice that in from the live performance. Amazing, Melody. Thank you so much. I know we persisted to make this happen. Uh, I appreciate your work, and I wish you well in the year ahead of us. All right. Thanks for having me. Ciao. Ciao.
That was Orange Shirt Day from the brilliant Melody McIver. Thank you again, Melody, for making time for the podcast. Appreciate your support, dear listeners. If you want to learn more about Melody's work and get into it, go to MelodyMcIver.com, please. And to learn more about my podcast and my work, of course, you go to FriendlyRich.com. We'll see you again soon on Industry Tactics. Take care, everybody.